we're going to continue looking at the time between the resurrection and the ascension. And uh, it's exciting for me to take a look at each of the Gospels and Acts and look at the commission that Jesus gives his church. I, I like to think of it as a, a diamond. Uh, one time when we were in uh, Vintuk, Namibia, the capital of Namibia, it's a, uh, it's a, a place, Namibia is part of the Deburs um, diamond mining uh, conglomeration. And so I went to this uh, jewelry store. What? It's in West Africa. Yeah, sorry. It's in Southwest Africa is where Namibia is. Um, it, it, I, I could talk for hours about the country. It's, it's absolutely marvelous, amazing. It, anyway, I went to this jewelers there just for fun. And of course, they heard my American accent and they assumed that I was a rich American and that I had money. And so I wanted to see a good sized diamond. And so they've brought out a, I forget, it was a two or three carat, uh, almost pure cut diamond and had to go into the safe and they brought it out and they had it on this velvet, black velvet thing. And they, I asked for, a, for one of those magnifying glasses you put in your eyes and, and the tweezers and I got it out and I'm looking at it. Like, you know, I'm really gonna buy this thing. <laughs> I mean, totally out of anything I could hope for, you know, in terms of cost. But I'm looking at this thing in the light as the light comes down on it. And every time I turned it, it looked different. It was the same diamond, but every time I looked at it, the prisms and the lights and the, it was just incredible. And I'm looking at this just absolutely amazed at how this little tiny stone can have so many facets every time you just turn it a little bit, it's still the same stone. And that's kind of like what I think about when I look at the commission that Jesus is giving his church. Each one of the gospels has it, it's just a little bit different, but it's the same commission. It's the same thing that God is telling to his church and each of the evangelists is, is seeing it from a slightly different perspective. And I know that within the church at large, there are lots of different theological persuasions that make them want to gravitate to one of the gospels and say, well, this is the great commission. And in our particular circles here, that's generally Matthew chapter 28. And uh, in, in Matthew chapter 28, we have the uh, focus being to make disciples of all ethnic people groups. That's the focus. Make disciples of all nations. You do that by going, by uh, baptizing, and by teaching. And we see the value and the importance of teaching because that's where truth comes in. And when truth comes in, that's where Jesus is. And he illuminates people, draws them to himself, and people are changed by the power of truth. And in our society today where truth is uh, a, an unknown commodity, it seems, people do, they, they make their own truth. They believe that their opinions 
are more important than anybody else's opinions, including God's. And they kind of sort of say, well, you may read the Bible and that's your opinion, but this is my opinion, this is my truth. And the minute you get rid of an absolute truth, that is, you get rid of a lawgiver, you get rid of a creator, then you have no measuring stick that says this is how life needs to be lived. And that becomes a major problem because each individual who says, well, we're all going to love each other, but we're going to love each other the way I think we ought to love each other, and somebody else will come up and say the same thing, and you end up with people at each other's throats over minor issues. It is impossible if there is no absolute truth for people to get along. Sin will raise its head and will always triumph where there's no truth. All right, so that's Matthew. But we also looked, you remember, at John. And John gives us the methodology. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. So the methodology of how we're being sent is the same way that the Father sent Jesus. So if we want to know how is God sending us into this world, then we need to examine how did the Father send Jesus. We looked at that briefly. You can only do so much in half an hour, but the, the, the focus of, of uh, how did the Father send Jesus, Jesus was clear about what his calling was. I have come that, and you can fill that in. He's got a whole series of things that he says, you know, this is to, I've come to do thy will. I have come, uh, you know, it's not, that, uh, it's not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but he was born that way for the will of God, for the glory of God to be revealed. I mean, he has a, a clear understanding of why the Father was sending him what his purpose was, and he fulfilled it. He was obedient to his father, even unto death on the cross. He accomplishes the will of God, regardless of what the consequences appear to be in human terms. We also looked at Luke, and Luke looks at the finished task of Jesus on the cross, and he looks at the unfinished task that still awaits us. And he's, he looks to instruct the disciples that this is something that we're going to do together. Now, that leaves one more evangelist, and eventually we'll get to Acts of the Apostles. But this morning we're going to uh, look at Mark. And Mark is uh, a fascinating um, approach as well, I think. I, I love looking at each one of these Gospels, because on the day of the resurrection, this is still on the day of the resurrection in Mark chapter 16. We're going to be reading verses 14 to 20. And, and in the process here, um, we have Jesus arriving on the scene. So let's, let's look at this on the day of the resurrection as Mark records it. In verse 14. And afterward... This is uh, after some others had gone away and Jesus had appeared to them. They came back. Those were the two on the road to Emmaus that we read about. All right. So, and afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reproached them 
for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it shall not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then when Jesus, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Well, the question I'm still trying to answer and want to answer is where's the power? And often that's true within churches and, and we, we yearn to see God show up and to show up in power uh, in the same way that he showed up when he came. And so uh, the question is still one that we wrestle with. Now, I understand that this particular passage of Scripture is probably chosen more by the Pentecostal groups as being the Great Commission, and they would turn to this passage in order to find their solace in the use of the gifts of the Spirit. Whereas in more evangelical circles like we're in, we want to go in with the teaching. And we want to have a focus on the teaching. And those two particular groups have throughout history, this is fascinating, but it's, I've done a little bit of research, not a lot, but I've done some research, and I've seen that these two groups are constantly, um, seem to be at each other's, they're, they're contentious. And uh, so it's true uh, for example, before the Reformation within the Catholic Church, you would have uh, a, series of, a series of outbreaks of, of revival, and people would turn to Jesus, and they would be preaching Jesus. There are some wonderful stories of some great evangelists, particularly from Ireland and coming down from, from uh, Sweden, uh, Anskar came from Sweden into Germany, and they had great revivals. Lots of people would gather around to hear the preaching of the word. And parallel with these, you would have an outbreak of what we would consider charismatic moves. This is just historical. This is the way things have been throughout history. Uh, the same thing happened during Martin Luther in the 16th century where he was focused on the word of God, translating the word, making sure that the word got into the vernacular, that the regular German people could actually uh, read the word of God for themselves and discover whether what the priests were saying was right or wrong. Uh, same thing was true with uh, Tyndall, uh, who was uh, strangled and burnt at the stake. And interestingly enough, 
while Luther is translating the Bible, there is an outbreak of revival in Jena, in a place not far from where uh, he was in Eisenach. Those are two uh, cities in eastern Germany. And uh, they, they called them the Schwärmer. Um, what would be Schwärmer in English? Uh, the, the, the sort of, what? Yeah, flighty people, you know, that they, they weren't to be taken seriously. And, uh, but it, it is fascinating to me just to observe that as being true. It's true when we have seen uh, moves of God throughout the beginning of the 20th century and uh, throughout the 70s. There was a, 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 quite a move of God throughout the world. As a matter of fact, as a result of what happened in Azusa Street back in the, uh, 1908, uh, the revival that hit there, there were several Pentecostal groups, and the Assemblies of God are now one of the largest evangelical uh, churches reaching out uh, around the world. I mean, you, you can't go to a country, you will find two groups. <laughs> you will find the IMB, and you will find the Assemblies of God. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's incredible, but that's just something that our, our missionaries from Germany when they went anywhere, they would encounter uh, people from those two uh, houses of faith. And uh, so that's an interesting approach. But I think it's important for us to not exclude anything in Scripture. It's one thing to look at the historical perspective, but it's important, too, that we begin to understand something about the Scriptures. Now, my parents... I'm just going to bring this up because the reaction of the disciples is kind of critical. My parents grew up in a dispensationalist understanding. That meant that there are different dispensations throughout church history. And the first dispensation that was the apostolic age, I'm sorry if those are fancy words. I try not to use them, but I, I, I don't know much about them either. To be honest, I don't I, I like to read the scripture personally, and instead of, uh, I, I like the scripture to speak to me rather than me trying to tell the scriptures what they're supposed to say. And so, but my parents grew up believing that um, when the apostles died, that's when the gifts of the Spirit died, because after that we had the, the, the scriptures, and we didn't need to have the uh, gifts of the Spirit operational because the scriptures is all that we needed in order to discover a relationship with Jesus. Um, and so they firmly believed that. And I remember when we were in Lebanon, um, it's just a strange thing. I'm sure you can identify with this, but uh, my sister came down with pneumonia and uh, she was really terribly sick with a really high fever. And my mother got down on her knees and put her hands on, on her head where the fever was, and she prayed the entire night through until that fever broke. And my sister got up the next day well. And she believed that the gifts of the Spirit had ceased with the apostles. Her faith says this does not happen 
when her daughter was sick, <laughs> she laid hands on her and prayed until she was well. And, and there's just a lot of that. Um, if you'll notice, we spend a lot of time praying in our church for people who are sick. Is that true? Uh, we pray for people. Why would we pray for people who are sick if we didn't believe that God hears and answers prayer? <laughs> it wouldn't make sense, would it? I mean, the logical conclusion is we pray for the sick because we believe that God hears and God will answer. And so we struggle with one, a theological framework that says these things don't happen. And on the other hand, we need to, to see God working in a real way in our lives. And I, I look at that and I don't see a problem between either Matthew or Mark. I don't see that we can exclude one or the other. I don't think that we can look at one and say, well, this is right and that is no longer valid. Rather, we need to understand what is really happening here. Now, the fact that these disciples are sitting down having a meal on the day of the resurrection, having heard from the women, having heard from the folks that were at Emmaus, coming back, they're sitting there eating, and they are struggling to believe that Jesus is alive. He had told them many times during his lifetime, right up until before his death, that he was going to die and be raised on the third day. It couldn't have been clearer that he told them that. And yet when others came back and spoke it, they had trouble believing it. Now I want to ask this question. When somebody told you for the first time that you heard that Jesus is alive and wants to save you from your sins, did you believe them? <laughs> I know I didn't. I know that when I was praying to get saved, my question was, God, if you're really there. That was my, that was my, my prayer was, I don't know whether you're there, God. I need you to show up in my life. I said, I'll give you my whole life, but I want to see the things that were written here happening here now. If it doesn't happen, this is a lie, and I will declare it as a lie. So my, my focus, so self-centered, isn't that the way we are when we first get saved? Our whole focus is only on me. I need this. I want this. And Jesus is just so gracious to show up in that kind of self-centered approach to life. I, I'm, I'm constantly amazed at how God comes to meet with us when our primary focus is on self. <laughs> and then he begins to change us from the inside out. When salvation comes, it's not just a free ticket to heaven. Salvation means wholeness. And wholeness means that he is going to heal us in our bodies, in our minds, in our spirits. He's going to create wholeness in every part of our body. When we turn to him, he's going to go through, one, an immediate understanding that he loves us and we belong to him. And two, we will enter into a growth process to grow in changing and into his likeness from one glory to the next. 
So we have, on the one hand, we've been made perfect, and we are being made perfect all at the same time. We have God coming to save us, and he continues to save us. So the focus here is, is an interesting one, that we understand that all of us wrestle with issues of life. All of us wrestle with issues of depression, upset, uh, tragedy, grief, joy, happiness, whatever it is, everybody wrestles with that. But we also wrestle with the issues of faith and what happens when we die. And every single people group within this world deals with that issue and will come up with some kind of an explanation. And only Christians, only Christians can come up with an answer that says, Jesus died for you, you will live forever with him in heaven. It's not coming back again and again. It's not a nothingness. It's not just that you die and it's all over and, and you forget everything. No, the Christians tell us that there is a God in heaven and there is a resurrection from the dead. And if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then anything that we do here is in vain. The focus is on the resurrection. And so Jesus, knowing how important that is, shows up to people who wrestle with the issue of the resurrection. He comes to encounter people who are seriously seeking him and struggle with an understanding, is there really a resurrection from the dead? We're not talking about ghosts here. We're talking about Jesus who lived, died, and is still alive. Like I mentioned last time, if Jesus is alive from the dead then cancer is a simple thing to him. You understand, if I believe that Jesus is alive 2,000 years after he died, then he has the power and the ability to either help reset a, a bone, to heal our backs, to, to do anything that he chooses to do. He has all authority and power in heaven and on earth. That's what he says in Matthew's gospel. So we're coming now to Jesus addressing them as the resurrected one. And they're still wrestling with, oh my goodness, <laughs> look who's here. <laughs> I mean... How do you eat? What happens to their meal? If, if you're sitting there eating and suddenly Jesus just shows up and says, Hi, here I am. <laughs> Why don't you believe in me? Why don't you believe what others have said about me? See, we all face that when we tell other people about Jesus, they will react with the same unbelief initially and will begin to observe your life and when they see that you really have encountered Jesus, they will become hungry for the one that you've told him about. So this message of the 
women coming back and telling the disciples, and the disciples, Peter going, and the folks from Emmaus, they're sitting there, and they're struggling with their faith. That is a normal part of the struggle that everyone who comes to faith is going to encounter. They're going to have to deal with resurrection. It's not just good teaching. It's not just good philosophy. It's just not just miracle working. It's not just nice things that people say about one another. It's resurrection. Transformation for eternity. And, and here Mark makes the commission clear. He tells these folks that are just starting to believe because they're confronted with Jesus, tells them the first thing that you do is you go into all the world and preach the gospel. That is the commission. It's short. It's just a little bit. Go and preach the gospel. Isn't that interesting? I mean, he doesn't tell you that you have to be responsible for the answers. You don't have to be responsible for miracles. You don't have to be responsible for anything. You don't have to be responsible for growth. You don't have to be responsible for, for people uh, understanding things. You don't have to. No. You go and you preach the gospel. <laughs> that simple. You tell people Jesus is alive. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He, he conquered sickness. He is alive from the dead. He lives forevermore. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He's the same. We used to sing that chorus, didn't we? He never changes. He's the same. I still can't sing. <laughs> and, in the, and in the midst of that, in the midst of that, God does something. God does something about it. You see, he didn't give the disciples the task to heal the sick. He didn't give the disciples the ability to overcome snake bites. He doesn't say this is a part of normal Christian living, this should be happening all the time. Do you, do you realize that Jesus only ministered to a small group of sick people? Sometimes he healed all that were sick. Other times he goes to the temple every single day and there's a fellow that's been lame there the whole time and he doesn't get healed until Jesus has gone to heaven. And Peter and, and John make their way to the temple and the guy gets healed. That comes up in Acts chapter 4. But how many times did Jesus walk past him? Timothy, who is a fellow who has seen miracles at the hands of Paul, Paul writes to him and he says, you know, take a, take a bit of wine for your stomach. Don't just drink water. What's he telling him? He's telling him, take some medicine. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? And there's a doctor that's accompanying him, helping to support his ministry. That's Luke. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, these are not issues. God uses people like Luke, and he uses medicine that God gives the people to help them in their... So he's not always doing 
miracles doesn't mean that he has stopped doing miracles. As a matter of fact, I, I would rather keep on believing God and seeking God at every corner that he would, he would reach in and do something. And if I feel like my faith is on the wane, I would rather struggle with that and say, Lord Jesus, please encourage and strengthen my faith. Get rid of my doubts, my unbelief. Let me grow in, into understanding. Now, here's the issue. When we come up with the commission being a simple thing, go and preach, this is what Mark writes. This is what he says. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, and he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. Do you recognize just from that verse how vitally important our going is? Think about that. If we go, some will be saved. If we don't go, even the sum will not be saved. Think about that. How we go, let Jesus determine that. Uh, I love the way that Jackie keeps putting up Bible verses on Facebook. I don't know who all reads them, but I, I think it's encouraging. And it's, it's powerful. It touches people's lives. There's, there's ways in which we can go that are not to be struggles, but they are natural to us. Think about this. Walking is, for most people, not a problem. Even in our old age. may hurt a little bit here and there, but we can still walk. Isn't that right? I mean, we don't think about it when we walk. When Peter walked on water, walking was not his issue. <laughs> is that right? But Peter cannot make the liquid solid. It's God who has to do that part. It's, it's not that walking is the problem. They are natural things to us that we can do. We can speak. We can share. We can lay hands on people. We can show kindness. And God can use all of those things to show his presence to non-believers. That, that takes away a lot of the burden, a lot of the difficulty from us. The next part says, these signs will accompany those who have believed. It doesn't say that the people who are doing the preaching are doing the signs says you preach and God is going to do something and explains it at the end of this passage where he says they went out everywhere and preached while the Lord worked with them confirmed the word by the signs that followed who does the signing who does the signs <laughs> Jesus that's, a, that's really important. It seems so simple, but you know, coming down, 
coming down I-40 and you see a sign that says Burgall, you don't pull off to the side of the road, get out and start to worship the sign. You use the sign to get to Burgall. <laughs> is that what a sign is for? It's to direct you somewhere. When people sit there and start focusing on signs, they're missing the, the sign giver, the sign maker. You see, the focus of miracles is not to point to great men of faith. The purpose of miracles is not so that people can get all excited that suddenly they've seen something that's unusual. The signs are there to point them to Jesus. The focus is that if you believe and are baptized, you will be saved. That's the goal. If, when I was preaching once in, in famine area of northeastern Uganda, in this one market square where there was nothing that anybody could buy, I got up to preach and the people all gathered around because it was different you know there was this white guy there and and they hadn't seen white people in over eight years and so they came around to listen and when I finished preaching and gave an altar call this one guy says now we've been so kind as to listen to you now give us something to eat and I'm sitting there looking at that I'm thinking I haven't got either the money or the food to give to these guys I don't and my whole focus is my friend you haven't understood. If I give you something to eat today, you're going to be hungry tomorrow. What I'm giving you is food for eternal life. If you will receive Jesus, you can die today and never have to thirst again. Never have to be hungry again. You haven't understood the value of eternity in relation to the temporal. The heroes of the faith like Tyndall, who was burned at the stake because he understood what was greater in life and he was willing to sacrifice his life for it. I, I, I look at, at our focus sometimes of glorifying those who seemingly have the gift when we misunderstand that the gifts are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're not our gifts. We receive the Holy Spirit. He has gifts and he will use them as he will. He will impart them as he will within the church. He has the ability to do it. He, he's, not, he's not going to hold back. But when and how, that's up to him. I can ask. I can ask Jesus. But the focus is that everything needs to point to Jesus. The signs that are there need to point to Jesus. I, I love all of my brothers and sisters, but I think that um, it's helpful, one, that we don't turn our backs on the miraculous, and it's important that we continue to seek for truth. And that we learn that 
there are people with all different kinds of approaches to all of these things. And we need to love them all. There are brothers and sisters. I don't care, you know, if they're raising their hands or dancing in the aisles. I, I've, you know, we've experienced that. I, I don't care if it's loud music. I don't like it that much. I prefer it if it's not as loud. But that's my preference. Loving people is not a preference. Loving people is what God creates us to do. And God creates us to be open to one another regardless of where our theological foundation is. One event really touched me a lot. The Pentecostals, the Assemblies of God in Germany suffered a lot back in 1918. They passed an edict saying that speaking in tongues was demonic, it was of the devil, and they completely ostracized the evangelical group from the Pentecostal group. And there was no coming together between the two. In, uh, in an attempt to try to bring these people together and to let there be forgiveness, there was a, it was not easy on either side, to be honest. But we ended up developing two the Evangelical Alliance, which included all the Baptists in Germany, had their missions umbrella. The Assemblies of God and all the other charismatic churches had their missions umbrella. And one day, we brought the two together. And one of the old Pentecostals who had gone through real struggles with uh, both issues of baptism and uh, the gifts of the Spirit had been ostracized, had been seen a real struggle from, from the uh, evangelicals on the, uh, on the other side of the, of the aisle. And uh, this fellow came from the evangelical group and was speaking to all the charismatic and Pentecostal leaders. And he was trying to say things that would reconcile one another. And this guy gets up in the back and he says, well, is that just your opinion or are you speaking for the entire organization that you represent? Because these are the issues that we've fought for in the past and we've struggled and we have been rejected and hurt because of it. And this man of great repute and stature within the evangelical churches ran to the back of the hall, got down on his knees and grabbed the Pentecostal's feet. And with tears in his eyes, he said, I speak for us all and I beg you for forgiveness for the way we treated you. see, the gifts of the Spirit, the teaching of Scripture, are really not as important as loving one another. And finding it in our hearts for forgiveness and for love to show and shine because there is a greater, greater call out there to reach the lost.
and any way that Jesus wants to use to reach the lost, let's get excited about it. And let's get behind those that are able to communicate the message of good news and see people brought into the kingdom of God. There's, there's room at the table for all of us. When we get to the banqueting hall in heaven and we sit down, they're going to be there from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every Christian persuasion. <laughs> they're all going to be there. And as we learn to grow in our own faith, to reach out and say, Lord, let's see you do something. We don't need to, to have snake pits. We don't need to test God in those ways. But if you get bitten by a snake, let's believe God that it won't kill you. I mean, Paul didn't go looking for a snake, bit him. <laughs> it, it happened and he just shook it off. It, you know, it's not a, it's not a matter of, of running out there to the hospitals and trying to heal everybody in a hospital. It's a matter of you doing what Jesus told you to do. And as we learn to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit within us, it's one-on-one. One-on-one. -on -one. One -on -one. And I, I love that. It's not an issue here of, of trying to, uh, to push one particular aspect, but it's a matter of each one of us wanting to grow in our faith. We understand that all of us struggle in it, but our obedience to the call, our obedience to do what Jesus asks us to do is going to prompt him to become active. And then we sit back in astonishment that we were on vacation. We just happened to be 10 minutes away from our daughter's house at a time when they needed us for God to do a miracle. I, I sit there just thinking about that. It's, you know, it, we, we didn't plan that. We planned something entirely different. But God, but God, but God. And we can all look for God to be active in responding to our obedience to him. We need to be growing in our obedience to him and expecting him to work with us. And as we share, let's expect God to do things. Bring people to salvation, touch their lives, open their hearts, heal their bodies, drive out the demons. Let's let God do what God does and has never stopped doing it. But making sure all the while that everything points to Jesus. It's not us, it's Jesus. Father, I pray this morning that you would not hinder us from moving forward, but that we would truly move forward step by step to encounter the joys that you have in our lives. 
We pray, Father, that we would see the excitement that comes from walking with you. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well... <clears throat>